I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. I'm your co-host Hoy, and with you as oh, with me as always is that not at all short but quite green Martian Jeff Goad. Howdy! And this week we are very honored to have special guest Sean Kelly of Gaming and BS. Hello, Sean. Hoy, Jeff. Thanks. Very happy to be here. And this week we will be reading Frederick Brown's Martians Go Home. But first, Sean, I'd like to ask you: How did you get into gaming, and when did you become aware of the? concept of appendix n yeah i got into gaming in the early to mid 80s so i'm old um (laughs) but i haven't been gaming every day since like some people um i started out with first edition ad and d with a couple older friends of mine um so i think i was 13 ish at the time so do the math you now know how old i am i got into appendix n you know i don't know if i actually knew Appendix N was there and in place. I think I glossed over it and never went into it, but I think it became more prevalent as I got older. Mm-hmm. Were you aware of some of the fiction just through other, I mean, a lot of people obviously know Tolkien, but any of the other authors just through your own interests as, you know, a hobbyist or, you know, a young reader? Yeah. I was one of those guys that had a lot of books that probably fell into Appendix N and owned them and never read them. So I think the more that I had, the smarter I was, but I never read them. <laughs> um, so I had like Moorcock, um, had a lot of Thieves World. Um, sure, you know, by, Yeah, the Aspens and uh, Lynn Abbey, I think, was also a, uh, an editor on that. Um, Tolkien, of course. Uh, Saber Hagen's, I think the Swords, I think he did the Swords series as well. A lot of those uh, Shannara's, m- many that I had never read. Uh, to this day, but I had them on my shelf and it was awesome. Did you find yourself revisiting the fiction as you've become, you know, gaming's become more and more part of your, um, I don't know, your presence, I guess. More, more in my life. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't as much as I've wanted to, cause here's the thing with me and reading. I fall asleep. Mm, it's very relaxing. And it's not, it is, and it's not because the the material is boring by any means. It's just a weird thing for me, and it's hard for me to stay awake and and read at long, you know, bouts of time. Right. Um, it really sucks. For music, me, music honestly. does that to me. If I listen to music after ten p.m., I conk out. Hmm. What kind of music are you listening to, Hoy? Uh, it, could, it could be anything. It could be literally Sex Pistols, and I'll start falling asleep. So. <laughs> <laughs> The Clash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So this week we are, as Hoy mentioned, discussing Frederick Brown's Martians Go Home. I'm curious, Sean, which version of the book are you working with? Oh, my God. You're going to laugh when I tell you. But I, I did the audio book. Ooh. Yeah. Nice, nice. Did uh, anyone interesting doing the reading on that or – Oh, you know, I wish I knew because I think the well, actually, I can pull it up really quick. I forgot to actually jot that person's name down, but it is, he's really good. I liked how he did the book and I would definitely recommend it if you're an audio book file. That's, I just, 
it's obviously doesn't put me to sleep as easily and okay. I can consume those things on like the rides, the work and, mm. and things of that nature. So let me see. Yeah. If audiobooks are putting you to sleep, it would be a bad idea to listen to them while driving. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I would not recommend that. Oh, it's uh <laughs> Stefan Rudnicki hmm. or Rud or Rudnicki. Sounds very deep, huh? deep boy, deep voice that there guy has. Nice. Yeah. All right. And Hoy, how about you? I am reading the New England Science uh, Fiction Association's hardcover of his complete science fiction novels, Martians and Madness. It's got a Bob Eggleston cover. And it's actually kind of meta because the Martian is actually the reading copy of Martians Go Home on the cover, which looks like the same copy that you might be reading there. Oh, <laughs> that's cute. I like that. Well, yeah, I'm reading the 1976 uh, Ballantine edition which has this uh, Frank Kelly Freyas. Is it Freyas or is it Freeze? We've done this before. I always forget. I think it's, I think it's Freeze, Freeze, but I'm not positive. Uh, Frank Kelly Freeze cover where it's got this kind of, uh, I don't know, it's a Bing Crosby looking kind of like a uh, little green alien guy with big pointy ears just kind of looking through a keyhole. Um, so yeah, that's the version I'm working with. And before we start chatting about this book and our thoughts on it and how it may relate to D&D, let's quickly look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Vicissitude. Vicissitude. And vicissitude is found on page 78. And it says, at least page 78 of my edition, since time immemorial, alcohol has been man's favorite gateway of escape from the routine vicissitudes of everyday life. Now man's everyday life had little green vicissitudes, a thousand times worse than the routine ones had been. And a vicissitude is a change of circumstance or fortune, typically one that is unwelcome or unpleasant. So with that in mind, Sean, Hoy, what did you guys think of Martians Go Home by Frederick Brown? Hmm. Uh, I thought that you, Sean. I, uh... I didn't know what to think before reading <laughs> the book. I figured it would be your, I, I figured there would be some satire to it um, and some levity for sure. I didn't know how much. And so mm -hmm. I think it was uh, very interesting in that regard. Um, definitely what I would picture as, because they did a movie off of the book. Yeah, um, I had not, Quaid. Yes. And I had not seen it. But it Me would either. I would picture it as one of those cheesy Martian type movies for sure. So yeah, it was enjoyable. Absolutely. What'd you think, Hoy? Um, I quite enjoyed it. I'm not sure that um I would have picked it up on its own because I'm generally not into sort of jokey science fiction. Um and I think that out of the writers we've read, he's clearly a professional writer. He, the style's a little bit dated, but he, it's very, it's got good velocity, the characterization, the dialogue, it's very snappy. It feels like a a little bit, again, like a, a 30s um, screwball comedy, but with sort of more of the 50s, 60s mores of, you know, a little bit more sexually uh, uh, suggestive, there's a lot of alcohol in here. Um, you know, so it's, it's kind of extended um, Twilight Zone or Outer Limits episode. Um, there's some actual psychological darkness, but then there's a lot of comedy that goes on on top of it. So I enjoyed it. 
How about you, Jeff? Yeah, I would. I would agree with Hoy, just quick to, to interject. I would agree with Hoy. It would not be something I would go and pick up. Like I would be more the science fiction, kind of more drama, suspense type than the the, the jokey type. Yeah, I thought it was fucking dumb. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I guess we're going there on this show. Okay, now I know exactly how to groove into this. All right. <laughs> And this is the first book I've read as a part of this project. We're just like, this book's dumb. Like, <laughs> and like, I, I get that it's, it was written in the 1930s. So potentially it's a little ahead of its time, but like, it just reminded me, do you guys remember the great Gazoo on the Flintstones? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Or that horrible eighties movie, uh, drop dead Fred with Phoebe Cates. Right. Right. Or maybe that was not early nineties. I don't know, but yeah. It it really just, bringing up some ones that I really wanted to forget. Thanks, Jeff. Right, right. Exactly. One, and I would love to forget this book. Um, yeah, just one correction. It was from the 50s, by the way, this book. And it's set in, nine, in the early 1960s. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. You're right. It was written in 1955, I believe. I said the 30s, didn't I? Yeah. It's written in 1955. It takes place in 1964. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The, the humor really missed the mark most of the time for me. I didn't I didn't like the aliens. I didn't like the way they spoke. I thought the storyline was kind of dumb. The one thing that I will give Frederick Brown, though, is I do think he did a very good job of in asking himself the question, what would happen to the world if this happened? He did have very interesting, clever and interesting. I said interesting twice. Interesting, clever and interesting ways of um, <laughs> kind of envisioning how this would affect the world. Mm-hmm. I think he also captured how the freelancer's life has not changed in 60 years. (laughs) 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 That's fair. Um, Yeah. If anything, maybe they get paid better than some of our current web writers and bloggers. (laughs) Um, But yeah, this certainly isn't like the high, the high fantasy Tolkien uh, kind of tale that we, (laughs) or this isn't your, your Jack Vance dying earth. This is a very different kind of story from what we've been reading so far in this project. Right, right. Um, And I think uh, Gary Gax doesn't specifically cite this book. He just says Frederick Brown in general, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is, this is Frederick Brown's, uh, I think, most well-known science fiction novel. Um, Frederick Brown also had this whole other side where he wrote a bunch of crime novels, none of which I've read yet. And then he also was very, very well known for these sort of very short, pithy short stories. I guess it would almost be like sort of little O. Henry science fiction stories. I don't know how jokey he is in all of his other work though. So if this is the, the sort of the epitome of his work, then we could be some for tough, tough sledding later on, but We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I think between this and Elspreg de Camp, it's it's pretty clear to me that Gygax really liked a certain kind of self-aware humor in his in some of his favorite authors. And it's a brand of humor that usually falls flat with me. I don't really find this stuff very funny. Hmm. hmm. Um what, though, did you think uh, – so we talked about this extrapolation of this world, how that might happen. So I could see how that would also appeal to Gygax, right? Gygax has, a sort of, again, sort of a more uh, naturalistic way of creating worlds, even if they're completely fantastic, as opposed to sort of the more gonzo style. Mm-hmm. So do you think that that was also part of the appeal to him? Sure, potentially. I can see yeah. that. All right. How about you, Sean? Any other thoughts that jump out at you from reading this book or listening to the book in this case? 
Um, it, no, no, no. It was ve- what I found was what one thing that I found was that it was very. So during the audio book, I know this doesn't really pertain when you read it uh, page by page, but during the audio book, sometimes you can zone out, right? Like if you're going down the street, you just uh, find your mind wandering. Sure. And this one, this one, you could you could potentially do that and not necessarily lose any continuity of the book, right? Because it's very segmented, like mm-hmm. one chapter doesn't necessarily have to roll into the next chapter and make any sense necessarily. Yeah. Like if they don't play together, you know, I don't know if you guys found that to be the same. Right. Right. I think you're right. Cause it's sort of like each chapter is sort of like a little vignette. We kept on alternating between the protagonist who is this sort of borderline novelist, science fiction writer and sort of what was going on in the world as these billions of alien billions of Martians basically show up. They don't do anything. They're just incredibly annoying. They're sort of voyeuristic. They, they know what everyone's thinking. They can see through, you know, safe. So they know everyone's secrets and they're just messing with people's lives. And they don't, we never know why they show up. We don't know if they're studying us, if they're in fact not actually Martians, maybe they're, you know, maybe this is hell and they're demons and they're, you know, that's one of the points they bring up in the book. Um, and then it just kind of alternates back and forth. And it's, and about basically how the entire world's having a nervous breakdown because these aliens are around and just like harassing everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, right. internet trolls. Yeah. They're internet trolls. <laughs> Yeah, of the 60s, apparently. (laughs) The early 60s, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious, what did you guys find was most effective about this this story? Like, what what worked? I actually like the relationship between the protagonist and his about-to-be-divorced wife. And you can see that there was still an affection. So it was actually kind of an interesting portrait of marriage, where it's not like they like automatically hate each other, but it's also like that they know that they can't quite, you know, stay together. Yeah. And then they sort of kind of how they sort of reconcile, even though the, the rest of this world is going crazy. Um, Cause I thought that she was actually quite an intelligent, interesting character in her own right. So yeah. And the affection was always clear. Like, although they yeah. weren't like madly in love with one another, the affection and the history always felt present in the writing of both characters. Mm-hmm. So I actually like that. So it's the least fantastic element. You know, unless you're a certain kind of, you know, gaming nerd, in which case it's an incredibly fantastic element. <laughs> but <there you> go. <laughs> a healthy relationship with a woman? <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, how about you, Sean? Anything that really, uh, you know, grab you? Or <laughs> You know, this is where I kind of fall onto the Jeff side, where it's like, I, uh, I didn't read too much into a lot of the the nuances. I think the relationship was an interesting one for sure, but, uh, it just seems so strange at times where it was like, because I, again, you don't know where this is going because, um, you know, they, you can't get rid of them. You can't do anything to them. They're the trolls of the sixties where they just come in and annoy the hell out of people. And, um, that I think that was kind of the, is do they actually exist i think was kind of an underlying theme as well you know right, right. and i thought is there going to be a part of the book where it's this revelation where it's all in somebody's head or right. yeah because there is the psychological element element too where you know the one individual that couldn't see them and was he be the only sane person i mean it was right so or that i he, think yeah or was he totally crazy so he thinks that maybe he was the one who created them and like because and that he's imagining them but then he can't make them go away then suddenly he has what appears to be a nervous breakdown and then he can't see them but the rest of the world still sees these martians so is he totally sane or is he completely insane 
And then it takes this weird metaphysical thing on the very last page where suddenly the writer, you know, Frederick Brown or the Frederick Brown stand-in suddenly comes in and says, hey, if I can think this is imaginary, what what does that make you? Are you, you know, the reader, are you imaginary? Are you figments of my imagination? And then it just, you know... (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Here, let's open that can of worms. Yeah. Right. Right. Marsh, it's Martians. It's Martians all the way down. So. And at that point, my eyes uh, roll as far back into my head as they can. You know, <laughs> it's, it's that whole like, man, how do we even know if this table is really here, man? Like. Uh. So let's let's uh, we. I think we all agree that we probably would not have come to this book, uh, except as part of this project. But had you come to this book just randomly. And what at what point of your life would you have been most receptive to it or most hated it? You know, that's hard to say. I I feel like my appreciation for this kind of comedy has been consistent throughout my life ever since I was young. Because I remember, you know, I'm I'm 39, so I remember when was Ace Ventura? Like 93 or something. So Somewhere around I was there, like yeah. 13 yeah. when that movie came out and I was the prime age to be the kind of person to love Ace Ventura. And all of my peers loved that movie and I hated it. And also I'm a really bad Dungeons and Dragons nerd because I also don't think Monty Python is funny and people love Monty Python and I don't care for Mel Brooks either. Like there's a certain kind of slapstick humor that has just never really appealed to me. So I don't know that there's ever a time in my life where this book could have landed in my lap and I could have enjoyed it any more than I did this time. <laughs> so, Jeff, what do you find funny? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question because it makes it sound like I don't like comedy, but I do. I, but I like a very specific kind of comedy. Like I'm a huge John Waters fan. I also like really black comedy. I love Christopher Guest movies. Um, you know, I thought Bridesmaids was really funny, um, even though that's a little slapsticky at times. But I tend to like my comedy to be either a little darker or, or I don't know, like there's a difference between like absurdist and slapstick. Like um, what is um, Kimmy Schmidt? What is the Kimmy Schmidt show called? Um, the Inevitable. Uh, the what is it? Something Kimmy Schmidt. Kimmy Schmidt. Yes, I love that show. That show's hilarious to me. So I love absurdism. I just don't like slapstick. I, I, I don't know. It's weird. And maybe this is like supposed to kind of be absurdism, but it, it doesn't work for me. I don't know. Yeah, there's yeah. a certain level of self-awareness. Uh, I mean, I guess all good comedy – well, I shouldn't say all good comedy. Comedy can veer between being completely surface and being very self-aware. Um, but there's that sort of uncanny valley where it's kind of self-aware but a little too uh, satisfied with itself. Yeah. And I think this is kind of where this book kind of falls into. Yeah, there's something very smug about his prose that, and and like Neil Neil Gaiman, I I do enjoy Neil Gaiman, but Neil Gaiman also has that kind of similarly smug prose that sometimes works for me and sometimes doesn't. Like even like right off from the very beginning, you know, he says, "What is that line?" Um, it's right after the prologue. Yeah, here it's um, on this. On stage at Rise of Curtain, Luke Devereaux, alone. Why do we start with him? Why not? We've got to start somewhere. It's just like there's like this kind of flippant (laughs) prose, which like it's kind of cute, but it's also like so self-aware and so tongue in cheek that it's like, yeah, dude, I get it. Like you're 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 being an author and you're like showing us that you're an author and like, yeah. uh, uh." (laughs) Now, I, I 
just went on Wikipedia before we started the show because normally I'm a little bit do a deeper dive on the authors. But apparently, Frederick Brown, although he's incredibly prolific, did not like to write. Um, so he would literally do anything possible other than write. He would literally like jump on a bus and take a two hour bus ride rather than write. But then he would get home and then he would just sit here in front of the typewriter and like hammer it out all night. So I wonder if this sort of self loathing uh, is both the characters sort of autobiographical and also that he's always somehow thinking he's above the material that he's working with. Um, Cause it's very, I mean, it's very polished commercial fiction, right? I mean, this is, in his prose is, is very good. You know, it's just not, um, you know, maybe something that engages us in sort of a, in a, at a deeper level. Sure. And I will focus uh, a little bit more on what I think did work. And one thing that I really liked about this is I'm a big fan of when an author doesn't over explain everything. And I got to give Frederick Brown props for not really explaining to us how this happened and why and what the real story is here. And I think it's kind of cool that by the end of the story, we have this, I believe it's an African tribe who are doing this kind of massive kind of juju to expel the Martians. And we've got this kind of weird conspiracy theorist who's like basically walking around with this tinfoil hat trying to come up with this weird contraption to get rid of the Martians and Luke Devereaux, who's this like alcoholic writer who's convinced that he created them with his own imagination goes back to the place that he was where he thinks he created them. And at that moment, that's when the Martians go away. So Luke Devereaux thinks he's expelled them. The tribe in Africa thinks they're the reason they've, they've been expelled. And this, this like random conspiracy theorist Infowars kind of guy thinks he's the reason that they're gone. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of dug that. I thought that was kind of fun and silly. And I like that we don't actually know if Luke Devereaux created it with his mind or not. Uh, do you guys have any theories as to whether or not this was a creation of Luke Devereaux? And did you find that that little gimmick worked for you? I do, You know, it's funny you mentioned the juju because they literally refer to it as juju. Yes. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so so the, the listener can understand like Jeff's just not making up that as a, as a catch all. Oh, yeah, no, it's right. literally used in the book. Yep, yep. Yeah. Call it juju. Yeah. And then the, the, the other one, I think he created the thing out of a tambourine without the, without the, I don't know what they're called. There's an actual name to them. The, the jingles of the tambourine. Yeah. And he right. gave it a name. It's like uh, the subatomic, uh, the frequency. Yeah. He, he Vibrator, subatomic super vibrator. Yes, the subatomic super vibrator, <laughs> all made. And from the character is Hiram Hiram Pedro Oberdorfer, and he's he's a he's a building superintendent, and he has too much time on his hands. <laughs> yeah, and he's and, and he's, he's deaf, and like has this good friend who's mute, and they just like hang out in the park where all like the homeless alcoholics sit around arguing with each other. Yeah, it definitely has a. Uh, it feels a little bit like the, the times I've hung out in Berkeley. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this guy is definitely from Berkeley. <laughs> and really, if that had been our main character, I kind of might have dug this book actually, because it, it, what what is that? What is that famous Confederacy of Dunces? I feel like mm. you could have done kind of a Confederacy of Dunces take on this story if you'd followed that character instead of Luke Devereaux. Right. Right. I mean, but going back to your original, I'm sorry, Hoy. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, going back to your original question, Jeff, and and how it resolves itself, and if I put any weight into, well, it was it Devereaux that ended it or the the tribe? I don't know. I didn't. I I would have probably just because of the main character piece may have put more weight into him playing a role in them leaving, but you, you just you just don't know. Yeah. 
Like it's a weird book because you're not only do you not know what's going on or how it's going to resolve itself, it never really does. Mm-hmm. It's just like poof. There's no explanation or reason behind anything. Right, right. I wonder. Uh, you know, I mean, it's considered this book is considered uh, a classic, but I don't know who. Like, did hardcore science fiction fans back in the day like this, or did they like? Oh no, you're you're demeaning everything we're standing for. And then was it a good soft entry for some of the people? It's like, oh, I don't really normally like science fiction, but I can get into this because this is kind of a you know interesting story. You know, blah blah blah. Um, it feels again like a kind of a lightweight and a very extended twilight zone episode but one of the more lightweight twilight zone not like one of the dark ones um yeah although although there's an undercurrent of darkness there's definitely with this desperation of the writer these people all having nervous breakdowns like that one psychologist who's trying to teach classes on how to how to uh cope with the martians and then he ends up you know having a nervous breakdown right in the middle of the class as he's teaching it so, <laughs> that that part was pretty fun too actually i can yeah. I, I i kind of enjoyed that as well yeah. although it was it was a little obvious but it was still well executed i thought right right um, yeah, I've read reviews online and it's, you know, it would be similar to kind of how we talk about it, where it's, I wouldn't pick this book up. I decided to, for whatever reason, I read it and it was really good. I liked it. I enjoyed it. It was funny. And then it was, so I, I kind of thought, yeah, going back to the original, like, I don't know if I would pick this up and read it and, and take it too seriously. And I don't know, literary, I don't know. I, yeah. Right. And, and. <laughs> One thing we always make a point of on this podcast is to say, like, listen, you don't have to do any of the stuff that we're doing because we're crazy. We're reading these books, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So, uh, but we also would never tell you not to read anything. But I will tell you that if you're going to embark on this crazy journey with us, that this would be probably out of all the things that we've read, like the lowest on your list to get to. So, <laughs> you know. I agree. And it'll be interesting as we read more Frederick Brown to see, you know, if by the end of this, we want to come out with a, you know, what to read if you're going to read the Appendix N, if this would end up being the thing that we still ultimately recommend or if we're like, no, there's this other Frederick Brown that you should read instead. Right. Uh, I have a feeling I have a feeling the latter because I, I can't imagine. And I guess as we sort of transition more and talking to the gaming that that this would be the thing that said, oh, this is the key that unlocks Dungeons and Dragons for me, you know, out of all sure. the books in Appendix N. So, or at least all of Frederick Brown's, you know, books. So that's, that's my right. guess. And honestly, I don't think everything that's in the Appendix N is there to unlock. I think some of them really are just like, oh, and here's an author I like. Right, right. Um, and then what did you like about him, you know? So. Sure. Now, Sean, one of the things that we often talk about on this show is the f- like this book was written 64 years ago. And 64 years ago, we had very different ways of writing about women, people of color, the LGBT community, things like that. Did you find anything about the way this book was written jarring in that pers- in that regard? So I didn't find as much as I thought I would, given the time period. Okay. Um, I think he stayed away from... I don't think anything that he touched on was overly offensive or out of time completely, except for the Mac and Toots piece, right? <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Mac? Hey, Toots. Hey. <laughs> but but otherwise, there weren't any. I mean, other than like the alcohol, and there was, I think, a, a bit of of a sex scene where one of the Martians came in, and now I get to watch your mating ritual, but it wasn't graphic. Um, and it wasn't, um, offensive and in that nature. And there wasn't any, I didn't, I don't think I heard anything racially oriented within the book. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Except for the things about the French. It was, (laughs) 
It was funny. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> right. Cause, yeah. uh, so it was all tied into the main thing because everybody's sex life takes a dive because they don't know whether or not these Martians are going to show up and just be voyeuristic. And so everybody's right. sex, dive takes a, sex life takes a dive, except the French, like they take a dive too, but not as much as everybody else. And then their, <laughs> their birth rate rec- recovers before everybody else's. <laughs> and not only does it recover, yeah. once it starts coming back, they're actually having more sex than before, right. both to kind of make up for lost time and because like they just don't care. Like they're not inhibited like the rest of us. Right. That was pretty funny. <laughs> One thing true. I found a little jarring was kind of the way he talked about Asian people was actually a little strange to me. I mean, there's one point where he's like talking about the Jap, and I, I understand that's 1955. Um, and there's another character who like holds a big press conference, and immediately after it's over and it doesn't go well, he commits Harikiri, which uh, seemed like a little silly and it didn't really seem to vibe. But like the one part that like was kind of strange for me though was this one paragraph here at the very end of the prologue where he's talking about how great 1964 was, you know, nine years in the future of when he wrote. He says, Europe was no more nearly united than at a time since World War II and a recovered Germany was taking its place among the great industrial nations. In the United States, business was booming and there were two cars in most garages. In Asia, there was less starvation than usual. I wonder why Frederick Brown feels like that's the best Asia can do. But I wow. don't know. anyways, I mean, obviously there would be the hangover of World War II, and the Korean War would have just ended the year before that. Um, oh, right. And then I, I mean, I still remember growing up. You know, obviously nobody ever said this to me because I'm Asian, but like, oh, eat all your food because there's people starving in Asia. But they were still saying that in the 70s, right? What? Oh, you're Asian. <laughs> <laughs> on the internet i could be anybody i might just be a talking dog it's true <laughs> right. but but i do remember that people still saying that you know and, and um you know japan sort of didn't really come into its own again until i mean japan is kind of now where we kind of think of china oh all the cheap stuff comes from there right and so it wasn't until okay. like the late 60s that suddenly japan is suddenly oh it's a modern vibrant society and i think about 10 years we'll be talking the same way about china even though China has clearly passed that point for us. Um, That's so true, because I, I grew up in the 80s, and Jap- the idea of Japan in the 80s was like high-powered businessmen who were super efficient, and they were putting out like lots and lots of crazy products, and like their industry was really strong. Like That was our view of Japan in the 80s. Right, right. So I think these things go in waves, and there's always going to be an element of like, Yellow Peril, where right now we're talking about it right now with this, you know, ginned up trade war that we're having with China. Um, mm-hmm. We just dated, we've just dated this episode, but that's okay. Um, but um, so I think there's always going to be that fluctuation. So it could be worse, but it's definitely not progressive, <laughs> right? Sure. So yeah, I miss I miss oh, the sorry. I miss the Jap part. I I totally miss that. Otherwise, I would have I would have picked up on that pretty quickly. That's uh, yeah, that's interesting. The Asia yeah. piece. The Jap part is also in the prologue. He just says, um, there was the Jap in Yamanashi who claimed to be a Martian and got himself killed by a mob not, that, that believed him. So that, he just kind of casually referred to that Jap. Right. And it's talking about the Singapore riots and the Philippine rebellion. Um, it kind of makes me think of like um, the one thing that I kind of, well, I wouldn't say it's the one thing. I mean, everyone gets different mileage, but the one thing that, almost destroys breakfast at Tiffany's, which is Mickey Rooney playing the incredibly f- oh. offensive bucktooth Japanese character in there. I had no idea. That, and I didn't see breakfast at Tiffany's until I was an adult. And as soon as that happened, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. But now taking this conversation over to the gaming side here. Um, God, I'm Sean, I just want to start by saying I'm really glad you're on the show because you're from gaming and BS. You are good at BSing about gaming because really, like, I feel like the gaming connection here is going to be so tenuous that the next portion of this episode is going to be a lot of BSing. Uh, so, <laughs> thank you very I feel like we have the right person on for this. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> but let's, I guess, start with... Um, Looking at these Martian characters and the way that they're introduced, could you imagine introducing a, 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 a creature like this into your game world? And if so, what kind of a gaming system would you want to use to introduce a creature like this as kind of the main plot point? That is a very good question. And the thing is about this is that part of me thinks that this book would do really well in a gaming environment for some reason. Okay. Because I, I often read, I think parts of it would be, Oh my God, that's exactly what my gaming group would have done or that's what they would have encountered or that's what, how they would have handled that. <laughs> I don't know if I would have said, Oh, I'm going to put down a green Martian or a green being. And well, I, I can't say I wouldn't do that because I think the the personality of the Martians, I would totally, as a game master, put that into place and turn it up to 12. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so they try to attack it. Great. It goes right through them. And they right. call you Mac and Toots. Like, you know, I mean, I would just be all over that for a while. That's definitely uh, feels like. It does actually feel like first edition. You know, there's always those monsters that can't be harmed by any, you know, cannot be harmed by material attacks, blah, blah, blah. And so you have to find the one. Maybe weakness. that was the problem. They didn't have any plus one weapons. Right. There you go. <laughs> Bam. Hashtag nailed it right, right there. Right. Um, and I actually, if I was going to do this, would do this to F with high level characters. I wouldn't do this like to, to mess with like first or third level characters. I would mess with like 12th level characters. Like by suddenly having all these things pop up, like somehow they 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 screwed up. They opened a dimensional rift to the chaotic neutral plane, and then the Martians show up, you know, or these these you know ultra dimensional beings, and then they're just screwing with all your twelfth level characters for the you know the next the foreseeable future, you know. Every time Absolutely. they try to sneak up, like instead of it being a kind of a curse that has like taken over the world, maybe it's just a curse against the PCs that they've somehow got this like these creatures that follow them around now tattle on everything they do they're spying on everything and they somehow can't get rid of them so you right. have to have the, the quest for it for how do i get rid of this like horribly annoying curse that we have that's like ruining all of our plans and letting our letting our um letting our enemies know exactly what we're doing and where we're going and right. <laughs> and then if you had a game yeah, that it would like, be like a spider a spider pixie right, right you that right. would just Ooh. be this chaotic little beastie that that's all they do is they latch onto these because they want companionship and all they do is just ruin their lives. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or like you piss off like the pixie God. And right. <laughs> right. Or uh, again, this is what like, this would cause your, ta- your, your players to eventually start throwing rocks at you. But if you had like a very tactical system, like third edition or pathfinder, just use them to like co- commentary for every time that they screw up something tactically on the table. It's like, I wouldn't have done that. You know, just like as a game master, just start doing all sorts of commentary on the play style of your players. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i could definitely see this as a i would yes i i think a lot of it would 
go into a game or bits and pieces of it, I would say, oh, either the personality or the incorporeal piece or just the chaotic nature of these things would be something I would go, uh-huh, yeah, I think my next game session is going to be a little bit more interesting than the last one. <laughs> you know, especially if your players are starting gotten a little bit complacent, like, oh, I, I think I'm in charge. I, I, I think I know what's going on here. You know, I've got my my plus three sword over here. I've got my explosive fireball and nothing can beat us. Right. And then we have these incorporeal things just, just, just effing with their lives for the next three sessions. You know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you lose your player group that way, but you know, sometimes you got to shake them up. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, oftentimes reading these stories, we can walk away with a little bit of insight into early D and D and be like, Oh, okay. This makes sense that this was set up this way. Now that I'm reading this, um, I didn't really see a lot of that in this book. Did you guys really kind of find anything like that or not really? You mean setting them up as far as like introducing them or knowing what their purpose is? Well, like an example would be when when you read the Harold Shea complete enchanter stories, you you discover that Harold Shea when he casts when he casts spells, he has to have verbal somatic verbal and somatic components to his spells. And suddenly like, oh, okay, well that's where DD got the idea of verbal and somatic components. Or in recently we reread a book called Darker Than You Think by Jack Williamson. And in it he's talking about lycanthropy. And in his examples of lycanthropes, he very specifically says, um, werewolves, were rats, were bears, were and he lists exactly the monsters that you find in the monster manual. Like, okay, well, apparently Gary Gygax looked at that paragraph when he decided to come up with what creatures to create for for lycanthropes. So, like, sometimes there are very obvious through lines between what we're reading and early D anD D, but I'm not really seeing any of that here. <laughs> I don't think so. I would say <laughs> Zippo zero nil. Um. Again, I think the only thing I can see is sort of at the more meta level of sort of the author, author slash GM sort of mm -hmm. as this kind of just the world is not what you think it is. It's what this person's actually describing, whether it's the GM or the author, right? So mm -hmm. that's that sort of at that meta level. I can see that sort of appealing to um, especially some of the early um, game masters who every once in a while like to throw a little screw you at their players just to keep them on their toes. And this is kind of where I, I see that maybe that attitude bleeding over. But as a specific, as you say, one-to-one -one correlation between something that's happening in the book and something that's happening in Dungeons & Dragons, I don't see that either. Now, one thing I think could be interesting is in this story, it's really about an entire planet dealing with the rules of the world suddenly changing very quickly. And I do think it might be interesting to maybe talk about, if you were to be running D&D, ways in which um, I ideas this might give you for something you could plant in your world to completely change everything all at once um, and how people respond to that. It's like, um, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't played a lot of Shadowrun. But I know that a big deal with Shadowrun is that suddenly at some point in the future, a bunch of people started turning into elves and dwarves and stuff. Isn't that, isn't that the backstory? Of pretty much, yeah. And then the, the dragons come out of hibernation and a bunch of other things. And magic is in the world. So, yeah. Exactly. And I find that oftentimes when something like that is a part of a role-playing game, it's usually a part of the backstory of the role-playing game. But 
I don't know. Could you guys ever envision yourself completely changing the rules of your world in one fell swoop, one fell swoop uh, mid gaming session like this? I have one that would appeal to you, Jeff, but I'll let, I'll, uh, let Sean take a swing at it first. Oh, man. I would love to, but I think it's a good way to really tick off a lot of players. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I would probably refrain from it because we talked about that on the show, too, where it's like, okay, we're going to start out and it's going to be this. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden, erp, we're going to change everything and I'm going to dictate that. And oh, surprise. And And sometimes players are like, many times players are, yeah, that's that's not cool. Yeah, that's not what I that's not what I signed up for. Right. If right. you start off with playing kind of a kids on bike, uh, kids on bike style game, and it's kind of a lost, uh, kind of a lost boys kind of storyline here, but then all of your characters tur- uh, are turned into vampires, and now you're using the vampire the masquerade rules. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> Surprise! Hey. Surprise! Here are your new character sheets. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, here's one, Jeff, I think you would like, but would cause every other player to flip the table. Okay. The, the, Martians, the Martians show up, and, you know, they have all this, you know, they can't be affected. It's proof that there are no gods. Poof, all your clerics, they don't work anymore. <laughs> right? The Martians. <laughs> right? <laughs> now they all have to go find a new jobs, just like, everybody, like all the psychologists and everybody else in Mar- Martians go home had to do. It's like, what do our, what do our clerics do? I was like, <laughs> I guess I'm. I guess I'm just gonna go be, uh, you know, a farmer again or something. I don't know. <laughs> can I multi, Can I change classes? Become a thief? You know, something. <laughs> but yeah, I, that that is a very funny idea. But, but Sean, I think you're right. Like, you really need to have player buy-in if you're going to do something kind of that. It, it kind of has to be the point of the story. Like, it has to be the thing that's happening in the first moments of the first session. Otherwise, you're potentially going to piss off everybody who's invested in the story that you've built together. Yeah. Or you, you submerge them slowly or it's the frog in the pot that comes to a slow boil. So you start implementing it where it's maybe confined to a small area and then it starts to grow and grow and grow. And then that becomes maybe a major plot point because, Hey, this thing that you encountered in this, you know, village is now expanding almost like a, a disease or plague, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of like, uh oh, the world's going to be in a lot different place if billions of these things are around and we can't do anything about it. And they call you Mac and Toots every day. Right. Yeah. Or maybe it's something that's like prophesized and you have to do X, Y, and Z to avoid this thing coming into, into the world and you fail. You don't end up doing those things. And now you're just like, all right, well, I told you what's going to happen if these things don't happen. So, boom, the world's full of demons and they're calling you Mac and Toots. Right. Right. That's very D&D. Right. <laughs> That's like, yep, check. <laughs> and to take it in a less humorous way for a second, I mean, there's been a sort of recent trend. I, w- well, I don't know how recent it is, but instead of sort of Lovecraftian, post Lovecraft, Lovecraftian fiction, to actually have stories that are set after the sort of Cthulhu has arisen, the Lovecraftian singularity. Mm-hmm. And so I could see almost doing a game where there's a little prologue of whatever the situation is being normal before, whether it's a kids on bikes game or even a modern Call of Cthulhu game. But the rest of the game is set after this singularity has happened. And it's either dealing with this world now where all these Martians are there, and it could be humorous or it could not be, but this thing. And then whether you're just dealing with it or you're trying to set it right, by somehow closing the gate, reversing time, whatever it might be. But so the prologue 
but the buy-in is okay something is going to change drastically here's the prologue but we know that this game is not going to be like that but i'm going to tell you that this is normal status quo ante but you're not going to know what's happening afterwards and then boom you know but literally just like one or two sessions of like the normal world whatever that might be Mm -hmm. and then boom into the game um so I don't know what would be most suited for that. I mean, I think you could do it in, in a normal fantasy game. It, I don't think it's dependent on it being like a modern modern day role playing game, like Call of Cthulhu or Curbs or anything like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, just a thought. One thing that I'm intrigued by here, though, is in this story we have a lot of characters who get really pissed off at these Martians and just fly into a rage. And I'm curious if you guys have something like this in your in your gaming world, would you leave it up to your players to decide when their characters have had enough and go bonkers? Or would you be making this something akin to will saves to so that you're telling them when they can no longer handle the annoyance of these things? Would you would you trust them to take care of it or would you take it out of their hands and make it the roll of a die? Hmm. Well, I think if I implemented this as it's written from the novel, my players would lose their shit. (laughs) 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 So having said that, I would probably have to tweak things because one of the things we mentioned is that there isn't any type of resolve. There isn't any, I mean, it's, it would be one of those puzzles that you would feed the player party that they wouldn't be able to figure out because there isn't anything to figure out. It's there are being, and you can't do anything and you can't get rid of them. Great. Great. That's awesome. Like that nothing players love nothing more than to want to be able to do something. And they're completely useless. Yeah. If you're going to D and D, if you're going to D and Dify this, you're definitely going to need to take away like the, well, there's nothing you can do and there's no way to solve this component of it. Um, and I, I forget if it was you or if it was Brett who was saying this in your puzzles episode, but one of you was talking about how um, when you have puzzles in your game world, it's a good idea to not only have multiple ways of answering those puzzles, but also being open to the ideas of if your players come up with a really great idea, and even if it's not one that you had considered to being open to maybe this actually is the way to solve this particular issue. So I Jeff's my favorite listener. There you ah. go. <laughs> <laughs> actually listened to the show and actually remembered a component of it. Yeah. No, I that's ex- said it though. <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. I said it. No. <laughs> um, Where's the little clapping um, there, audio audio there, clip? There. Oh, you want me to throw that up there? <laughs> there you go. Actually, the more you talk about it, the more objectively I think that this uh, story would be best done in Call of Cthulhu, even if it was done comedically, because of the sanity rules and because of, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, although – if you were saying, would I force uh, my players to to behave in this way? Uh, objectively, if you look at any gaming group, well, I should say any gaming group, any of the ones that I've been at, the, the play is actually insane. If you actually just step back for a second, it's like, you think you're being normal, but you guys are actually insane. So that's the that's the whole fun of insanity is when the people think that they're being incredibly normal. Like, I mean, the guy with his machine, his, his super vibrator, he thinks he's like the smartest man on earth, right? He doesn't think he's crazy, right? So... Um, it's just, but then it becomes like, what kind of amusement do you get out of it? And are your players just like tearing their hair out? You know, so. 
Sure. And making this even less specific to Martians Go Home, I'm curious when you guys are running your games, if, for example, somebody is put under a charm person spell by the enemy or something like that, do you in general kind of let your players decide for themselves how affected by the spell they are? Or do you kind of project a lot of your own intentions onto that? Or do you even take it away from them and play it yourself? That's I think dependent upon the player. I try I would try to give them the latitude to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. But I have some players where it's anything bad is not good. Right? right? They're just, you know, it's always I got positive, good. I don't want hindrances. I don't want to have any flaws or anything like that. So then you almost have to say, Well, hold on now. Hold on. You're you're not playing that up enough. You know, you you gotta you're being too reserved. It's okay. You're not going to die, but you have to, you know, play your vulnerability just a little bit more because that's the deal. And I've got players that fully embrace that. And then I've got players that are just going to be, Oh God, fine. You know, and they just go (laughs) kicking and screaming. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that's an interesting point. I think, um, I think two things. I think by the nature of the game I play the most often is DCC. And so I think people are a little bit more willing to go with that because they're a little bit, um, they get invested, people get invested in their characters, but not in the way they would in sort of a more consciously built system like Pathfinder, where you've invested a lot in building your character. Yeah. And so it's more about investing in playing the character in some ways. Um, so like, oh, okay, I'll go with it. And most of the players I've had have been pretty good about it. And I'll, I'll take them aside and say, listen, I would prefer that you continue to roll your character, but here's a couple things that you uh, play your character, but here's a couple things I want you to hit on, you know, while you're under the influence or you're possessed. Like, you know, you know, it's like when um, people who are just a little bit drunk and they, so they try to behave extra normal to pretend they're not drunk. So play it like that, you know? So you were like a little bit extra normal, right? But then people start sure. saying, Oh, Hey, what's, what's a little off by him, you know? Um, so I prefer to do that. And I think I've been blessed with having, pretty good players, uh, both at the open table and in sort of our more just like week to weekly games. Um, but I would never want to inflict that on a player who just wasn't into it. You know? yeah. So that's, that's fair. And I, and I, I like what you're saying about kind of it being dependent upon the system in some ways. Cause I, I feel like the way that a, somebody who's really into their Pathfinder character is going to be potentially invested in their character in a very different way than somebody who's really into their DCC character. And I think some people who would be really into their Pathfinder character are also really invested in the feet tree that they've built for their character, how they want, how they want to see this character's abilities grow. And that's oftentimes what they're more invested in. Where at Dungeon Crawl Classics, you don't really have that feat tree in there. You don't really have plans for how these characters are going to progress. What you're instead invested in is this weird zero-level gong farmer who had a chicken under his arm. But because this this gong farmer had the chicken under the arm, like somehow you've created this like fun little storyline about like his obsession with chickens or something. Right. And as you as you played that character, as he's like gone on through the levels, now he has this like lucky chicken with him or whatever. And like now, like when he when he got his big helmet, it's got like chicken feathers on it. I don't know, but like maybe, but there's something silly about that that you're like you're now really invested. You're really invested in like the personality of this character and playing this character the way that you think this character would behave. So because of that, when you're thrown into a situation where you now have to, where you're now under the spell of, you know, Valdana, the Goblin Queen, 
if your concern is protecting your feet tree versus your concern is playing your character the way that you see your character responding, you're going to have two very different reactions to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not just DC, but any character system that uh, allow a game system that allows suboptimal characters to survive, uh, I think it's going to be more receptive to something like Martians go home type situation, as opposed to, um, you know, again, GURPS, um, Pathfinder, any any things that are very strongly character built systems like Mithras, any of those systems like that, you're you're going to have a harder time um, when your sort of your character sheet essentially is attacked, right? Yeah, and even something like Spyhander, where it's like I've not played Spyhander and I would love to, and I my my impression is that you start off pretty suboptimal, but also you're very focused on these career paths and you, like you want to like get enough levels in Pit Fighter so that you can then move on to this next thing. Um, that that there there might be some more conflict there because you kind of have competing agendas happening with your character build. Right, right. I guess the Spyhander is such a, a crap sack world, though, that you kind of expect that to happen to your characters in a way, you know, or Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, which is what it's derived from. So as opposed to again something that is more overtly heroic, like D and D Fifth Edition, you know, any of the more recent editions of D and D or Pathfinder. Yeah. So now, Sean, I'm curious, how much intentional comedy do you like to? In, 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 do you like to inject into your world? And as a player, how much do you enjoy when you're playing in a game where the game master is being very intentionally jokey with his game world, with his or her game world? So I don't want to take gaming too seriously. I mean, look at our podcast for Pete's sakes. <laughs> right. It's gaming and BS, yeah. right? I mean, but at the same time, I think um, uh, the approach that I have is you know, you come to the table, you're going to play. We kind of all know somewhat what is expected. We're not playing paranoia or tune, right? right? You know, so I think there is a certain element to that. I mean, I had one gaming group where I had a person who thought they were a stand up comedian. So every few minutes, it was a pun or a joke or a punchline. And look, I, I can take take it with the best of them, but it can get to excruciatingly painful limits yeah, right. uh, where it's like, come on, man. Okay. Not everything in this game is a complete joke, Yeah, but I think it's, it's like a star Wars or, or something along those movies where it's like, okay, great star Wars. And then there's, you know, Hey, everything's fine here. How's everything with you? And you're like, Oh my God, that's hilarious. Right. You know, it's funny, but it's not so it's not uh slapstick, right? right? It's not, Hey, I'm going to slap my knee every five minutes and, you know, it's not the three stooges. So I think there is a bit of levity in the game. Um, but this would be this with this book and coinciding with gaming, it would have to be more par- maybe a paranoia game. That would be definitely right up its alley. But um, so a little bit, but not too much. Yeah, I'm with you on that. How about you, Hoy? Um, I like um, like the OSR general approach. I think comedy in my preference would be emergent. So it's it's by the response to these absurd situations that happen, but the situations are not necessarily set up to be deliberately absurd, right? I'm, I'm not looking for a laugh, but people will always laugh to relieve stress or just realize like, oh, I don't know how my character survived, you know, that 30-foot fall down the ravine, bouncing off of each side of the wall and impaling himself on the branch at the bottom, but he still has five hit points left, you know? So, yes. right, you know, he's Sir, you know, Sir Jordan of the branch, right? Now he's got walking around with his branch stuck through his chest, right? So, okay, <laughs> that's funny, right? But, you know, um, so I, I prefer it to be emergent, and I don't mind um, 
you know, players breaking character, making jokes, dumb jokes. It happens all the time, even at the best games, um, for various reasons. I, I don't, I don't uh, require one hundred percent, one hundred percent immersions. Always, you know, saying in character to them. To me, that's stressful. I never enjoy that. I'm not a, I'm not a post theater major. I'm not an improv comedian. Um, so that's not my bag. I, I'm. It's fine for everyone who is good at it, enjoys it. It's just not my personal bag. So, yeah. you know, that's my take. Perfect. Well, we are running out of time and I'm curious, Sean, before we wrap up, is there any kind of last thing about related to Martians go home that you wanted to touch upon before we wrap this up? I think it is an interesting book. I would have never read it if Jeff said, hey, this is the book we're going to read. Go and read this. And I'd say, okay. And then I started it going, what in the hell did this guy give me to read? (laughs) And it's funny too, because Brett was like, is Jeff pissed at me? Why did he make me read this book? And what's funny is when, because we had to re-record Brett's episode because of some audio issues. And when we recorded it the first time, I had not picked up Martians Go Home yet. And we recorded it the second time. I had just finished Martians Go Home. And I'm just like, dude, Brett, you are the lucky one. It's Sean who like <laughs> really got the difficult one here. Right. Oh, I would have loved it for him to get this book. And just I would have laughed the whole time. I think our ongoing project now on is just to find the author, uh, the book and the guest host that we think are the least suited for each other. And that's what we'll do for the next, you know. Six, seven I, years. I think <laughs> I think you'd have a good dynamic that way, Hawaii. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I've recently heard Mark Hunt from uh, the guy who did Gangbusters talk about how much he hates Call of Cthulhu. Maybe we should bring him on for an HP Lovecraft episode. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Mountains of Madness for you, Mark. You ha- enjoy. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been awesome having you on the show, Sean. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. If people want to look you up or get a hold of you, uh, how can they do that? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Sean P. Kelly. That's S E A N P K E L L E Y. I've got two E's in my last name. That's my personal Twitter account. You can find me every week on Gaming and BS uh, podcast at gamingnbs.com. But I think that should do it. Very cool. Do you have any particular projects or anything like that that's coming up that you want people to know about? Uh, no projects uh, in the works right now. I think I'm just running a game for some patrons of ours um, and trying to build that out a little bit. Um, it may be kind of a mishmash of West Marches style um, along with the Tomb of Annihilation, right. kind of drop in, drop out, mishmash of things. That's kind of what I'm getting organized, which is you know, we talk about it on the podcast and then I do it and go, wait a minute, what that, this, none of the stuff we've ever talked about makes any sense with how I'm trying to make this happen. Uh, but that should be fun. But yeah, I thank you so much guys for having me on the show. It's been really, really fun. Definitely. Definitely. So Jeff, what episodes do we have coming up? All right. So episode 48 will be on August Durlis, the lurker at the threshold. And episode 49 will be Margaret St. Clair's the sign of the Labrys. Is Labrys, it Labrys? Yes. Okay, the sign of the Labrus. And Hoy, how can people get a hold right. of us? You can always email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. You can catch us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, we're on Facebook and MeWe. Look for us there. If you like the show or just want to give us some feedback, please do rate us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. It helps people find us. And um, thank you very much. And also, Jeff, how about the Patreon? Yes, so our Patreon is coming along. Uh, We really, really appreciate your support. 
Uh, we're going to give a quick shout out to a few of our patrons. So thank you for Noah Green, Sith Khan, Kurt Rosener, Eric Johnson, and uh, and Andrew Carnes. There we go. Uh, thank you guys so much for supporting the show. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, head on over to Patreon slash Appendix N Book Club. And with that, we are finished. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>